After one's event this past weekend with Eddie Alvarez and the very tough fight for Demetrius Johnson, the whole scenario begs a few questions. For instance, Eddie Alvarez was ranked as high as the fourth best on the planet at lightweight, where his opponent, Timothy Nastyukin, still isn't even listed on some websites. And it wasn't a close fight either. Eddie got starched. DJ, on the other hand, managed to end the fight extremely well, but was definitely rocked a couple of times against Wakamatsu. In Johnson's case, he's easily the number two or number one flyweight fighter in the world, depending on how you perceive the last Cejudo fight. And it makes you wonder, are rankings completely arbitrary? Is there any point to them at all? I find this to be a fun question we can seek to answer by diving through history. Luckily, we've seen clashes between many organizations, so there's plenty to look at. Let's take a look. I'm Jason from MMA on Point, and I'm asking, does the UFC really have the best fighters? For the obvious purpose of looking into this, it's necessary for us to disregard the UFC ranking system. The reason being, it doesn't include fighters not on its roster. Well, duh. So a fairly reasonable source would be something like Tapology, and later on we'll look at SureDog for earlier data. So then looking at each of the weight classes present in the UFC, Tapology easily shows a clean sweep by the organization. A familiar cast of characters you will no doubt recognize, like Daniel Cormier at heavyweight, John Jones at light heavy, Whitaker at middleweight, Usman at welterweight, and so on for the men and women. The UFC boasts the top ranked fighters in every division they have, and historically this has been true going all the way back to the days just after Pride. Back when Pride was on top though, it was way more mixed up because the UFC didn't have all the best fighters back then on paper. The earliest rankings I can find on SureDog, the far and away leader of MMA coverage back in those days, is from August 2007. Back then, there were far fewer weight classes to compare as many weren't even in the major MMA organizations. What we did have was heavyweight, light heavyweight, middleweight, welterweight, and lightweight just five classes. This was far before the WEC merged with the UFC and lighter weight classes were adopted. Furthermore, this is six years prior to Ronda Rousey and Liz Carmouche fighting in 2013 for the first UFC women's matchup. So jumping back into the rankings of those existing divisions, Pride had the number one spots with heavyweight and Fedor at number one, light heavyweight with Shogun, and lightweight with Takanori Gomi. On the UFC's end, they had Matt Serra because of his then-recent win over GSP. Also, Pride didn't have a 170-pound weight class, so that was an easy win for Zufa. And of course, who could top Anderson Silva in 2007? But this would all change within one year, because BJ Penn had risen to number one at lightweight, with Gomi suffering a couple losses outside of Pride. GSP would assert his revenge on Matt Serra, and Shogun would be upset by Forrest Griffin, where he would actually win the light heavyweight title as well. Anderson and Fedor would retain their spots, but this is significant because within that one year, the UFC held the top spot for every weight class except heavyweight, because of Fedor's elusive presence outside of the UFC, where he'd maintained that spot until June of 2010, suffering the shocking upset from Fabrizio Verdum. So in the summer of 2010, the worldwide MMA powerhouse at this time could not be denied as it held the top pound-for-pound -pound slot in every weight class. But this is where it gets interesting, because Pride was not the only acquisition that Zufa had managed to snag. Strikeforce, the organization Fedor had just lost in, was sold to Zufa on March 12, 2011, and it had a particularly large stable of the world's best outside of the UFC. Alistair Overeem, or then really Uberim, Nick Diaz, Luke Rockhold, Gegard Mousasi, Jacques Array, Dan Henderson, Gilbert Melendez, and essentially what would later become the UFC's women's bantamweight division. Beyond that, it had Fabricio Verdum, Robbie Lawler, Tyron Woodley, Yoel Romero, Anthony Smith, Daniel Cormier, 
And when you think of it, we're basically looking at much of the current UFC minus the weight classes Strikeforce didn't have at that time. It's kind of fascinating to think about because every division the UFC had at the time Strikeforce was purchased, except for lightweight, had a champion in each division. What's even more fascinating to think about is that when Rockhold beat Weidman for the middleweight title at the end of 2015 for UFC 194, Strikeforce ruled those four classes simultaneously. Not what you would have predicted four years prior when the UFC bought the organization. They were seen as second tier. And rewinding back to when Strikeforce was purchased, just a little more than a month after that, the WEC, originally acquired by the UFC back in 2006 and was operated separately, merged into the organization and would begin bringing in featherweight and bantamweight divisions to the UFC. Flyweight would be brought in the following year. But they also brought in their own 155 pound division that was set to clash with the UFC's lightweights. And the two top fighters at that time from the WEC came in the form of champion Anthony Pettis and previous champ Benson Henderson. Shockingly, Pettis would lose to Clay Guida since he didn't want to wait for his guaranteed unification bout with Frankie Edgar, and it was Benson that would eventually capture the title. And after three defenses, Pettis would find himself again beating Benson to take his title, this time in the UFC. So through two organizations coming into the UFC within a short time of each other, the two lesser leagues, according to rankings and popular opinion, would rule the UFC's belts in every weight class that it had. This all flies in the face of this notion that the best are in the UFC. And these are just the clashes between mergers that I've talked about so far. We can look historically back to Randy Couture losing after vacating the UFC heavyweight title in 1997 against Ensign Inoue in Ballet Tudo, Japan. Pat Militich lost multiple times outside the UFC when he was their welterweight champion. Chuck Liddell lost in the Pride middleweight tournament. Merlo Bustamante vacated his title and went to Pride and lost there as well. More recently, Benson Henderson and Bellator, and then of course, Eddie Alvarez running through RDA in 2016 to bring it back full circle to lightweight. And I should be fair about this too. There are a litany of outside champions that did not translate their kingpin status into the UFC. Guys like Will Brooks and Hector Lombard were champions from Bellator, Nick Diaz, Jake Shields, and Gilbert Melendez from Strikeforce, and I already mentioned most of the Pride Fighters, although some of them would eventually enjoy UFC gold. But what's the takeaway from all of this? How can we answer the question of what this rankings nonsense means? Obviously, there is no true way of really knowing until you see a fight happen. We all know anything can happen in a fight, but there are a few factors which have really changed the game, I think. Number one is the advent of long, legally binding exclusive contracts. Like when Randy Couture wanted to leave in 1997 to fight in Japan, he just did it. When he tried again in 2007, the UFC finally had the cash flow to block him and better contracts than when SCG was in charge, so they stopped it. And of course, the really huge upside of having these exclusive contracts is you have the best fighters as told by the rankings under the same umbrella all fighting each other. But what's particularly poignant about Randy Couture is that he did lose when he went to Japan in the past. He lost multiple times in Japan, in fact. And when he came back, he actually won the title. It's possible we would have never seen him lose in that amount of time. And that's what was really different about those early years. Back then, a fighter could just decide to take a fight anywhere in the world. And I think it's created pockets of expertise to an extent. Before Eddie Alvarez fought at one, it had been 10 years since his last fight there. DJ had never fought there, and whether it be the massive time difference, the new rules, new weights, atmosphere, whatever you want to say, 
They both looked a little bit rusty. Alvarez seemed like he was in some sort of fog, and DJ was being sniped on the feet for a large part of that first and second round. Although those knees in the ground were pretty dope. Either way, these exclusive contracts, I think, have created a bit of a continental divide. Binding contracts simply don't allow fighters the chance to seek out these opportunities that offer odd challenges to a western-based fighter. The other explanation is that it feels like the skill gap has begun to shrink enormously. The dynasties of old really don't seem to be a thing anymore. Fedor, Vanderlei, Anderson, Jose Aldo, Dominic Cruz, GSP, Demetrius Johnson, Cyborg, They've all ended. The only two that exist now are Jones and Cormier as far as long title streaks. And there's a weird overlap between the two considering the overturned loss in their last fight. It calls into question Jones's streak entirely, but Cormier also refers to it as a loss himself. And there could be some developing new title defense streaks between guys like Holloway and Habib, but those two are in a collision course, so that remains to be seen. And on that note, we can't disregard that these multiple division title fights are certainly a factor as well. I suppose what my conclusion is here is that I do think the UFC certainly has the best talent in the world. You really can't deny that. One loss from Eddie Alvarez and a rough start for DJ doesn't negate that. But the saying anything can happen in a fight has probably never been more true. What's also true is the sport is more popular than ever on a worldwide basis, and organizations like One, Ryzen, KSW, M1, Bellator are all showcasing that. And as more fighters are finding options outside of the juggernaut that is the UFC, we'll continue to see them tested in new environments. Let's just hope they'll cross-promote like Ryzen did with Bellator and we can see the best matchups worldwide. Thanks for watching. If you enjoyed the video, subscribe and like. We upload at least three videos per week about MMA, and it really helps us out when you do so. If I missed anything on this vid, let me know in the comments, and feel free to follow me on Twitter, at JasonTheHeart, or follow the official channel account, at OnPointMMA. Thanks for watching so much, and I'll catch you on the next video. ...into finely tuned death machines. But there are some fighters amongst the ranks that, be it for their sheer physicality, their demeanor, or the sense we get that they just cannot be stopped, go far beyond the expected level of intimidation, and move into a category of downright terrifying. And today, we're going to count down those fighters who left their opponents and the fans waking up in the middle of the night with a cold.